to claim it. I want to welcome my guest, James Sanders, today. Hi, how are you? Good to be here. <laughs> Thanks for joining, James. James, you picked Steph Smith. Can you tell me why you picked Steph? Well, as a jazz violinist, there are some very uh, pivotal, important moments in uh, the development. And Steph uh, was probably the single most important figure in jazz violin, him and Eddie Sell, I would say. so. Yeah, and he's definitely a lesser-known artist. I feel like the only people I talk to who know about Steph Smith are string players. Right, right. <laughs> we have our community of string players that's very, very deep and powerful and very passionate. And uh, even classical string players recognize the contribution that that stuff made because he was uh, so distinct and original. But as far as uh, looking to who's done it in jazz, most of the time as jazz string players, we just try to uh, learn from other instrumentalists. And there's just very, very few violinists that we can uh, glean information from, and stuff is one of them. Well, let's start. Let's uh, talk about his life. So he was born in 1909 in Portsmouth, Ohio, but he wasn't there for very long. He grew up in Cleveland. You want to talk about his education a little bit? Yeah, well, from what I understand, you know, he, he was just sort of uh, self-taught, uh, particularly the violin, and uh, in his early years, he did a lot of singing, and he actually had his initial success as a singer. I didn't realize that. Yeah, uh, and back in those days, it was common that the lead singer would also double on violin. Hmm. For uh, the role of the violin in, in a jazz setting or in a popular setting, this was before things really were heavily amplified and so forth. The lead singer would often also be able to play violin. And that was a thing. And I didn't realize it until I did some research about it, you know. And an evening might mean some salon music and then that leading into, you know, a little bit of dance music. And, uh, and so stuff kind of uh, came up that way. I don't know a whole lot about his childhood, but I do know that he did end up at uh, Johnson C. Smith University. And stayed there briefly. <laughs> yeah. He got a scholarship, right? He got a scholarship. This was an all-black school. Uh-huh. They had a really important teacher there uh, that uh, had an ensemble. And um, matter of fact, I think they named a street after him there. But stuff was a part of that um, before he went off to work with, with Alonzo Trent. When you say that the it was traditional in bands for singers to double on violin... What kind of bands? Like, that wouldn't have been jazz bands, right? No, this was early swing. Okay. Early swing bands. I, I got a little glimpse of this when I heard some recordings that were made by uh, Eddie South, actually, between 1928 to 37, or maybe 37, starting in 37, around that time in Paris, in France, where he w made a series of recordings where he was sort of coming out it's almost like a ragtime feeling of music into the very early stages of swing music. was a little bit more on the on the swing side of things than 
than Eddie South was, but uh, they, their their lives parallel. They lived around exactly the same times, and it was interesting to see how things manifested uh, for each of them a little differently. Definitely. So he left school pretty quickly, and then he started touring. He had that initial success with Eyes Muggin, his song, and Use a Viper. And Use a Viper was about smoking marijuana. Uh-huh. <laughs> very popular back then. And it was very popular. <laughs> <laughs> Around the same time that it came out in the United States, uh, Grappelli and Django recorded it in, in uh, Europe. Eyes a mug and boom. Weeds a mug and bang. Eyes a mug and splash. Roop for a hat through. Eyes a mug and boom. They wrote many songs about marijuana. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of clouds in their songs. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting how, so he, one of his big contributions was that he started amplifying violin. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting how he ended up, he started playing briefly with Jelly Roll Morton's band, and Jelly Roll Morton was known for being a really kind of loud player, and the whole band was a pretty right. loud, raucous right, band. Right, right. And he couldn't be heard over the rest of the band. Right, right. So he quit the band. Like, he quit Jelly Roll Morton's band, which I think is crazy. Right. And then he started looking into different options for amplification. Yes, and it's interesting because as a violinist, that remains the biggest single challenge in, in terms of playing with bands, is amplification, how much, what kind, what kind of amplification and how that affects the sound of the violin, you know, because it changes it. I personally, myself, don't like using like a hard body violin or, or a specific electric instrument because I don't feel like it sounds like a violin. You know, and I, I prefer to work with an acoustic instrument. And, and so I relate to the struggles that he had and the fact that he tried so many different things. They even had the Vial Electric Violin Corporation that made a violin and it was endorsed by Stuff Smith. And they, they had some kind of primitive electronic components. And What would have been the issues with that? I feel like older mics are always really temperamental compared to today's mics. Right. It's also just finding a transducer that you could play because if you have a microphone there's only so close you can get to the mic Mm -hmm. right and then if you get uh, so close to the mic even then there's going to be certain frequencies that come through and others that don't and then you you end up having to play a little differently just to try to create a certain amount of volume so that affects like uh, the note choices the ranges you would have you know the attacks that you might prefer to do and so you need some kind of transducer that goes on the instrument, something that will give you a stronger signal and that you can uh, play a little lighter and with the technique that you normally will. And so he, he started using the Barkus Berry pickup. It's got a little cork bottom and it kind of goes right on the top of the instrument. And I actually have one. I had gotten one in high school and um, you also see other jazz violinists like uh, Joe Venuti, especially if you look at the album Joe in Chicago, where you see them, they have this Barkus Berry pickup with a rubber band <laughs> on the violin because they would have this clamp that would never really work. So everybody huh. ended up using a rubber band. You know. 
That's that's a look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That actually, how you were adhering it to the instrument, yes, <laughs> is more limited than. Because I feel like with bass, you have way more options of where you can clip things. Just the nature of it being a much larger instrument much and larger. one that's not right by your face the whole time you're playing. Right, 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 right. And the violin is so, you know, everyone's got a different sound on the instrument. And uh, Stuff had a very aggressive attack and a really a biting kind of sound. So he needed something that was going to have a lot of juice to it in order for him to, to play the way he did and to keep the time the way he was keeping it. Sometimes I love you Sometimes I hate you but when I hate you, it's cause I love you. That's how I am. So what can I do? I'm happy when I'm It's, it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of articles uh, written about Stuff's process of amplification and all the different things he tried. <laughs> and kind of paved the way for modern day jazz violin, really. Yeah, he was definitely a pioneer and showed us that, that it could be done. It still remains probably the biggest thing that a violinist has to contend with in terms of integrating into a jazz combo of any kind, you know. <laughs> sure. So after the Jelly Roll Morton years, he left after a couple of months, and then he ended up taking his own band to Buffalo. And he was in Buffalo, New York for a while, kind of working things out. And it was he was also playing with Jonah Jones as a trumpet player that came up a lot when I was looking into Little Hart and Armstrong story. Right, right, right. The Gabriel of Harlem. Right. That yeah. became his nickname. Yes. And then he was discovered in Buffalo by Charles E. Green of Consolidated Radio Artists, Inc., which I'm not sure what Consolidated Radio Artists, <laughs> Inc. is, but sounds like Charles E. Green was the guy who said, come to New York, we're going to have you play at the Onyx Club, and that's where he became Yeah, huge. yeah, he became huge there. He had a long run there. Yeah, it seemed like he had... Everywhere he played, he played for, like, a long time. Yeah, people loved him. Yeah. People loved him. His energy and his... The time wasn't like it is now where there's such an amalgam of styles. It seems like even if you go to a jazz concert and you see a set, the set may incorporate a wide palette of influences and styles. And uh, I think at that time, if something was swinging and it was swinging hard and you could do that all night... You were good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and especially if it was danceable, which was, his music was danceable. Super danceable. Super danceable. And yeah. he always talked about that when he, when the bebop guys were coming up that, you know, he would say things that, well, you can't really dance to it. <laughs> <laughs> like know? that was the gauge. <laughs> yeah. You know, he felt that was important. Yeah. You know, and people were happy to go spend an evening listening to something that was just swinging really hard and stuff was the guy that could do it, especially on a violin.
sounded like he was also a total character. He'd wear like kind of a worn out top hat and a parrot on his shoulder, which is just yeah, hard yeah, to well, yeah, yeah, right. Was it a real parrot? No, it was like a stuffed kind okay, of. Okay, that makes you know, more sense yeah, to me. It's, it was somehow anchored into the shoulder of a suit you know i'm not sure which is weirder a fake one or a real one <laughs> but it's definitely a thing that people would talk about afterwards yeah, yeah. too yeah, i could yeah. see that yeah. kind of working yeah he was an entertainer no yeah. doubt he was an entertainer he was a character he was a persona and he was swing he was just a swinging cat and you know he could show up on stage with a violin and swing harder than anybody so isa muggin he composed while he was at the Onyx Club, I think, right? That sounds right. But it kind of blew up. It traveled all the way overseas to yes. the Hot Club of uh, France, and it was a huge hit, and he became well-known all over. And then he started recording a little bit. He recorded with the crew from the Onyx Club, which were referred to as Onyx his Boys. Onyx Club boys, yeah. on the Decca label. It mm. was in 37... There aren't a ton of recordings of him through the years. Not not a ton, but he also collaborated with different people, you know, which is kind of interesting. So yeah. Nat King Cole, Sun Ra, mm -hmm. Ella, Herb Ellis. And, you know, so he would just show up as a flavor uh, in a lot of places, too. So he appeared in a show. Have you seen Swing Street? Mm-mm. So 1938, he... Everybody was trying to get into Hollywood, you know, I think that's where the money was. That was like a, around the same time that like Louis was trying to break into Hollywood and stuff too, or was breaking into Hollywood, but he got into Swing Street and he was like going to pursue that, being in film as a career for a short period, and then it kind of didn't pan out, it sounded like, and so he ended up back in the recording studio and, you know, playing gigs again. I knew of people that knew him when he was in Chicago for a brief while. And, and you know, one of the things that also was an issue with stuff was that he was a pretty heavy drinker and partier. And, and this sort of snowballed as the years went on. And so there was a little bit of a complication sometimes with him because of that. That, in some cases, got in the way of some of his work relationships, shall we say. Yes, <laughs> yeah. he burned a couple of Yeah, bridges. he burned a couple of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they, everybody loved him, of course, and he was very famous, and, you know, very popular, and there was a little bit of an issue with that. <laughs> yeah, which unfortunately, it sounds like that kind of shortened his life as well. It, it shortened his life, yes. Like you're saying, it, it burned some bridges, and, and it was one of the reasons he went to Europe was that some of the professionals that were agents and so forth like that it just kind of had enough of some of those antics and, mm -hmm. and it just wasn't worth the stress to them yeah <clears throat> he was known for loving a good story though and telling a good story yeah telling a good story and going around town and, and you know hanging yeah <laughs> There's a story about, he tells a story about uh, being driven around New York by Art Tatum, who was blind. I'm really surprised how often it comes up. Art Tatum drove people around a lot. 
That <laughs> seems like a problem. That doesn't seem like a good idea. It keeps like, uh, coming up, and I'm like, wait a second. Well, we got to do that. They might have to do a whole podcast on that. Yeah, yeah. just to collect. You so know, like, who actually rode in a car with Art Tatum? Yeah, what's the story Behind there? the wheel. Yeah. So that was one of them. I think there's like a collection somewhere, right, of some of his anecdotes. Uh, the book is called Pure at Heart. It's... Uh, a book written by Anthony Barnett that talks about stuff and there's some interviews with stuff so there's some interviews in this book which are really insightful and then there's just this like story that stuff writes that's in here where he just kind of talks about his his life and what he was trying to accomplish with his music hmm. you know what he was trying to share with his art and it's very profound he talks about the things that he loves. You know, he'd say, "I love, I love women, like my, like my wife." I guess it was his wife, Eva. She's beautiful, but she's devilish. We're going to show you something that you. I mean, we're going to try to show you something in music that you probably didn't know. Hmm. And then he, he goes on, that he's a. I'm a violinist. I'm not a fiddle player. I'm a violinist. I play violin my way. That's the way I played, and that's the way I think it should be played. I mean, according to my type of music that I play. Now, when I was a young boy, my father was a musician. My sister, they were. They were doing pretty good, and I was doing pretty good. So, so I had my first escapade of hearing some good music, which I love. I love jazz. And it's just interesting to see his words. It's you, interesting that it's in, like, his speech pattern too it right, seems like right, like it's not right, edited to right like, it's just like it's, it's not cleaned a, up it's not cleaned up it's like yeah. it's like it's almost like transcribed yeah totally like a jazz solo would be transcribed or something <laughs> you know? yeah that's great and how rare to have that yeah yeah it, it gives you a little insight and this enthusiasm and this passion that, that you hear in this interview for, hey, li hey, life is rough, but we can respond to it by swinging hard, man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and nobody can stop us from that. And um, he had some of his demons, for sure. You know, um, Anthony Barnett, the same fellow, tracked down his violin after, you know, he died. But it was like he had to go through Stuff's family and finally he saw it, it was like this red violin, you know, that everyone talked about. And uh, he found some notes in there where Stuff would send little notes to his family because he was trying to send them money and sometimes he, he, would, he wouldn't be able to because he wasn't working enough and, you know, mm. things like that. So he had his struggles, but uh, he, he, he kept the music uh, fresh and, you know, to the very end. Yeah.
Okay, so you talked a little bit about his time in Chicago, and then he toured with Dizzy for a while, which Dizzy had listed him as, like, Dizzy had high praise for him. Yes, yes, yes. And he ended up working with Dizzy a fair amount later in life. Mm -hmm. But the first time was touring with him in 51. Right. This is pre-Bebop, mm -hmm. you know, pre-what a lot of us think of us as the jazz era. I mean, it was the beginning of the jazz era in the sense... But it was definitely just swing, you know. It was, mm -hmm. you know. And so when you think about that context and you hear some of his licks and stuff, you realize how sophisticated they were for the time, you know. Mm -hmm. He was doing some pretty clever things because he wasn't just playing blues licks, you know. He was throwing in some other stuff. So it's it's kind of cool. <laughs> then he toured with Sun Ra before Sun Ra was Sun Ra in '53. I have the I have that. Uh, interview there's interviews called Sun Ra Speaks and there's recording of him playing Deep Purple with Sun Ra. Oh wow. Yeah and that is one of my favorite. I love hearing it because because I love hearing Sun Ra's voice and, and his uh, generosity of spirit in his voice but also the way he talked about his relationship with the stuff. Hmm. It's really interesting. I played his trio. He liked what I was doing. Sometimes he sit out the piano he said no. I can't understand why the white race hasn't discovered you while they sleep. I can't understand. One day they'll listen. Norman Grants um, put him on an album that's probably what people know best now because it was with Oscar Peterson and Dizzy. So it was a trio album in 57. And that was the same year that he ended up playing on an album with Nat Cole. That's a really neat thing. And he was, his health I think was starting to decline big time in these years because he they kept talking about it in articles, especially 61, he ended up playing at the Monterey Jazz Fest, and there was a lot of discussion of like his failing health and how he hadn't been playing as much in those recent years leading up to that because of his health, and it was all all pretty related to his Consumption. issue with drinking. Yeah. 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 I, I remember talking to Elaine Warren, who's the matriarch of the Warren family, which is the violin shop downtown. And uh, she remembers as a girl because Stuff was friends with her father. Mm -hmm. How she would say these stories about how Stuff would come over and he had one woman who was with who couldn't be with him anymore because she couldn't stand to see what he was doing with his drinking to yeah. himself. You know, it was just too painful to watch. Right. And so this was during the Chicago years. So if he was pretty bad off at that point. Yeah, that's that, 45. 
Yeah. yeah. So so this is like serious abuse. <laughs> Later, I think it was after he'd moved to Europe, the doctors looked at him and there's like an article where they talk about they called him like a, a medical anomaly or something because they looked at his stomach and his liver and it was in such bad shape that they've like never seen someone alive with that condition of a liver and stomach. It's not really something you want to hear from your doctor. No, I, I would think not. I think I might have read somewhere they, they somehow tracked down that the, he was staying in a hotel before he was taken to the hospital the final time. Mm-hmm. And they, they tracked down the receptionist or somebody who he talked to. And one of the things that she remarked was, oh, yeah, he said he wasn't feeling well and we got him a doctor. But he was such a nice, kind man. Hmm. You know, he still was a sweet person. He, you know, he, he wasn't, you know, irritable or, you know, uh, even though he was obviously in discomfort and pain, he acted like a gentleman. Wow. You know? Yeah. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and I I think about it because both him and Eddie South, who lived about the same time, lived for about as long, were uh, people that not only influenced the direction of jazz violin, but actually influenced jazz. You know, Eddie South was the beginning of gypsy jazz with, Mm -hmm. with Django. Those early recordings is where gypsy jazz started. And Stuff Smith, when you got guys like Dizzy Gillespie sing... This is the guy who taught me how to swing, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are both pivotal people, but they were also black artists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, the hardships of being a black artist (laughs) during these years must have been formidable. And they were successful, and they made an impact, but that adds to the legacy of their lives in such a way, you know. That stuff was uh, universally accepted by everyone and loved mm-hmm. but the reality was this was not a great time to be black in America no. <laughs> and, and, and stuff had the ability to transcend race through his art form mm-hmm. because you know he was one of those types of artists where you're living in an age where well the, the black man has to stay in this hotel they can't stay in this hotel or they have to come in this door that club only mm-hmm. has but then when you had someone like Stuff, well, let's make an exception for him, hmm. you know? Because if he was a hot act, you couldn't get a better act than that. So that changes things for people. That opens doors, and, and, that, and that was one of the things that he was able to do also for people, I think. Yeah, that's a big legacy. One of the things that I was reading in one of the articles, 1939, there was like a big thing made out of Paul Whiteman's band, his all-star band. He finally integrated the band, and mm. Steph was one of, I don't know, six or nine artists Okay, or okay, well, that's a great... I didn't realize it, but that goes to that... Mm-hmm. That it yeah. was still a big thing for a band to be integrated at that point. Yeah, but you're such a badass that... Yeah. You know what? You're on our select list of badasses that we were that we're putting in this band. Yeah, it's not that Paul Whiteman's band wasn't good; they were good. I just they are like so held up in the newspapers of those times as like the gold standard of swing music and jazz. And every time I listen to it, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's nice. (laughs) Well, not only that, but the guy's playing a violin. There's still only a handful of jazz violinists, really, that hang. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and you got to be kind of crazy to do it. 
Mm-hmm. Believe me, I know. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you're taking something on that you got to really want it. And, and Stuff was that guy. You know what? There's this guy and he's so bad that if we want to be in the in the middle of what's really happening, we got to get him over here. <laughs> yeah. That's great. You want to blow now? covers all the stuff stuff two other things that i like to do on the podcast one talk about your own personal nerd mountain so just something that you nerd out about that's what the reference to nerd mountain is just Mm. something that you like really like to talk about and get way in depth on and then the other things to talk about what you've got coming up so first off what's your own personal nerd mountain well i mean you know stuff fits into that category um I guess my nerd mountain would be the violin, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, like all kinds of things about violin history. I think that's sort of where I've focused my uh, obsession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, and then what do you have coming up that we can kind of... Well, uh, I mean, I mean, the big thing... The big thing, and, and it might might have already happened by the time this podcast comes out, but it's going to be in play because I think it's going to be an ongoing thing. So we, we released a, a CD with my Latin jazz band. Which is? Conjunto. And, and, and that's been my manifestation, really, probably culturally and also musically. The strongest manifestation has been the, the Latin jazz music that I play. And... Um, so we had an album coming out called Evidencia. It came out. It's all original music that I wrote with the band, and it's doing really good uh, as far as people being excited about it, and so I'm happy for that. sponsored by DK's and the Jazz Institute called Stories of the West Side from the West Side where basically we're going to the Humble Park community and getting shared experiences of stories from the people and we've created new works of music around that Wow! and uh, and so we're gonna and two of them are gonna be choreographed and we've got a big presentation on uh, the Ruiz Belvis Cultural Center next Saturday um, the 30th and uh, we're going to showcase these new works but the reason why even if you don't make it to that uh, the, they've expressed interest in kind of keeping this going and it's really neat because just ordinary people are getting up and sharing stories and we're giving voice to that you know what I mean let's take this story and uh, 
build a piece about it. An example of that, there was a girl that got up and shared how when she was little, she had a troubled household, but she used to escape with her little sister to the Humboldt Park boathouse. There's a little island off of it. And she used to go there and spend the day there to get her sister out of the house so nothing bad would happen. And she, she was only eight years old at the time. And so she, she talked about this little island where she found refuge. And so we've shaped pieces around that. And, and uh, that's the kind of thing that we're doing right now. So That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, keep a lookout for that. Stories from the West Side. And we'll keep it going, hopefully. That's awesome. <laughs> yep. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This yeah. has been great. Yeah, this has been great. And uh, appreciate your interest in Stuff Smith. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sources for this episode include Stuff Smith and JCSU by Dr. Tom Hanchett, James Sanders Notes for the Dark Angels of the Violin, articles from Bloomington News, Kenosha News, Progress Bulletin, The Capital Times, The Pittsburgh Courier, Dayton Daily News, the Dayton Herald, California Eagle, Santa Maria Times, Asbury Park Press, the Sacramento Bee, and the Brooklyn Citizen, as well as Nancy Wilson's interview with Arlene Danzig-Smith for NPR, and an interview with Stuff Smith biographer Anthony Barnett. I'm Christy Bennett, and this has been another episode of Nerd Mountain. If you enjoyed the episode, like and subscribe so you can climb with us again.